Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every Hello, Loretta Bruning. How are you? Hi, nice to talk to you again. (laughs) Listeners, just so you know, not that you haven't heard uh, Loretta Bruning on a podcast before, she's also the podcast host on the network of the Happy Brain Podcast. So we're going to talk today about a new book that she has coming out, which is all about anxiety and don't we need to uh, know more about that. The book is called Tame Your Anxiety, Rewiring Your Brain for Happiness. Loretta, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So when is the book coming out? I need to read it right away. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's already out. Yay. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Last week. Oh my gosh. Okay, great. Well, tell our listeners a little bit about this particular book. Well, um, perhaps listeners know or not that my focus is always on the animal brain and understanding how our brain chemicals work in animals so that we can better manage them ourselves. And in my other books, I wrote about the happy brain chemicals. And in this one, I focus more on the unhappy. But again, my focus is always on the positive. So it's not about the unhappy, but how to manage the unhappy. So how does an animal manage their unhappy brain chemicals? And an animal who panicked when they smelled a predator would not survive. And we are descended from survivors. So what is it that we've inherited that allows us to manage our uncomfortable feelings. So that's a short introduction, I guess. Mm. Yeah, and and in terms of this book and having it focused on anxiety, what was, you know, what was the reasoning for wanting to publish this one and focus on that very, very broad um, topic, but that everybody struggles with? (laughs) Well, frankly, I was requested to do it by a few people. So (laughs) as I said, normally I like to focus on happiness and the positive. And normally I try to avoid um, the disease paradigm. But um, first a reader asked me, and so I wrote it as a self-published sort of workbook. And then my agent liked it, and then a publisher liked it. So then it became a full book. Fantastic. So let's talk about some of the ways in which we can learn how to tame our anxiety. So it's not like a list necessarily, although I have a list in there, but it's understanding 
and really accepting and appreciating your natural danger radar. So mm -hmm. if a gazelle smells a predator, what does it do? Doesn't focus on the predator. First, it takes in information because I need to know where the predator is before I run. Then it chooses a strategy. It looks for the best escape path. Then it invests its full energy. And then it's back to enjoying the, the grass. And when I say enjoying, that's really a human projection because um, gazelles need to eat constantly in order to get enough nutrition from that sort of bland grass. So that's what we're designed to do. When I have an uncomfortable feeling, to take in information, to scan for my options, to invest fully in one of them, and then get back to enjoying the act of meeting my needs. And I explain those steps in a way that everyone can do and everyone can practice so that it comes automatically during a bad moment. Interesting. I like that, you know, we can liken ourselves to gazelles in terms of that flight fear response, but how do we, I know you study a lot with primates, so how do you see this and how have you studied this in terms of um, what are our closer um, origins, which are to primates? Sure. Um, you want to hear something, oh, something funny? I don't know if you were hearing noise, but there was a bird outside and it kept banging into my window. I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it, but okay. you know, we, we love <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, I was getting sick. So, uh, yeah, so let's have more of a primate explanation. So, um, the bigger an individual's brain, the more they can anticipate threat rather than only focusing on threats that are immediately reaching their senses. So that's why gazelles' babies get eaten by predators sometimes, whereas our babies almost never get eaten by predators because we anticipate threats. So um, primates uh, have uh, more uh, anticipation because they have more of a cortex than a gazelle, and our cortex is triple an ape, and so we anticipate threats a lot more. And that's what happens in our daily lives is when we're relatively safe from immediate harm and immediate starvation, we anticipate potential future threats. And we do that with our cortex, which is separate from our mammal brain. And all of my books explain that we have two brains because we need both. And the whole point of the book is helping your two brains work together cooperate rather than being at war with one another. And when I say being at war, we have that horse and rider analogy where the horse thinks the rider is a jerk and the rider thinks the horse is a jerk, just to, to say it in very brief terms. And instead, <laughs> we're both brains to understand and accept the needs of the other and work together. Fantastic. Yes, exactly. And boy, does that correlate with human beings right now. There's so much, and a lot of this is due to social media and the fast pace of society, but there's such a high anger, quick to anger trigger response right now about everything. Did you feel like, you know, the book was timely because of that going on in our culture as well? Um, frankly, I don't watch the news, and in my opinion, the news is trying to um, incite that kind of anger, and every 
week, every month, every year, there's a new justification. I call it chronocentrism, where we always feel like we're at the turning point of history. And this moment is so urgent for the rest of humankind. And it's natural to feel that way because the brain sees the world from its own perspective. And because we know we're gonna die. So our clock is always ticking and we have that feeling. And in terms of my being as selfish as anybody else, so I was a college professor for most of my adult life. And so I blame this on college professors rather than social media, having that mentality of, um, in universities, it's called critical theory, where everything is urgently wrong and you should be in a rage all the time. And that's mm -hmm. what young people learn from their teachers and they repeat it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And good for you for not watching the news. I don't either. I will get a highlight reel from uh, Google News, and uh, and uh, but I don't dig in deeper than that because it's just too activating for me. So, <laughs> you know. Well, and nothing good is ever mentioned. Right. Exactly. You know, like the whole. I always use the example. Once the internet came about, we had so much available to us, and it was all free. Like, oh my God, this is such a miracle, and all people can do is complain about it. You know, everything is so easier, you know, with text and maps and everything. Like, you, you never spend time giving people directions to your house and then they get lost. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So, <laughs> in terms of what people, you know, why it's important for people to understand that where this comes from, how, you know, we have evolved into the creatures that we are today and how anxiety plays a role in that. Um, how would you, you know, give a high level view of, of that for our listeners? Sure. So a lot of people have heard about the reptile brain and um, I have another book called the science of positivity. This one goes more detail into this part. So the reptile brain, as you know, is focused on meaning basic survival needs. And with our human cortex, we never say that to ourselves consciously, like, I have a feeling of urgency about meeting my survival needs. But that's the job our brain is designed to do. So if you think that in one moment, a reptile is hiding under a rock in order to be safe, but then it gets cold when its body temperature falls under the rock. It has to go out into the sun or it will die. But when it goes out into the sun, it can get eaten alive in a second. So then it hides back under a rock as soon as it's warm enough. So it's not having fun yet. <laughs> it's just going between one threat and another all day, monitoring what's the worst thing in my life and let me deal with that. Okay, now that's okay. Now what's the next worst thing in my life and let me deal with that. <laughs> so you can see how this is basically how people think. And um, uh, that's the job our brain is designed to do. So if you imagine like our ancestors, they're cold, and they could freeze to death, and they make a warm fire, and it's like, ah, oh, okay, now I'm okay. But I could die an hour from now if my firewood runs out. So my next urgent task is to get more firewood. And then what's my next urgent task? And what's my next urgent task? So that's how our reptile brain works. But then our mammal brain is more social. So it 
it puts some it 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 has some sense of ease when it's with a group because it spreads that burden of vigilance and shares it with others. But what does that mean? It's like many people then say, well, now I'm going to blame the group for my sense of threat and I'm going to expect the group to protect me. And whenever my needs are not met, I'm going to, exp I'm going to blame the group. So that's not necessarily um, a relieving of threatened feelings. So again, when you understand your mammal brain is creating all of this, then you can focus on what I would call the dopamine part, which is the joy of meeting your own needs, which is the job that your brain evolved to do. And you can do it. And it's just keep, keep returning your focus to that. I can meet my own needs. I will get a good feeling when I meet my own needs. The good feeling is metabolized in a few minutes. And then I got to do it all over. And that's what my brain is designed to do. Mm. How about people that are dopamine deficient for genetic reasons or from trauma, things like that? Well, once again, this is the disease paradigm. And um, I don't really see it that way. So let's mm. think about from a primate perspective, how does dopamine work? When a little monkey wakes up in the morning, it's hungry, it, nobody gives it food, has no refrigerator, it has to look for food. When it sees something that it could eat, its dopamine is triggered. It's like, oh, there's something that meets my needs. And then it starts walking toward it. And when it sees that it's a little closer, more dopamine. And that's the brain signal of, oh, keep doing that. You're going to meet your needs. So it's taking the step and finding the opportunity to meet your needs and taking the step toward it is what stimulates dopamine. There's no such thing as your brain releasing it for no reason. So um, I don't think people are really helped by doctors that tell them that. Mm. I mean, except for, you know, if it's Parkinson's or something like that. And um, just to explain the link, the physical action of stepping toward what meets your needs in nature, it's all one thing. It's like monkey sees the banana and swings toward it. And you can see how dopamine does both jobs because it's really one job of, of getting resources to survive. So our actions are um, dopamine is involved. Mm, okay. And that's Parkinson's. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, what kind of an audience are you, you know, wanting this book to reach? Well, obviously, I think um, all humans <laughs> um, would enjoy it and find it useful. And um, even if a person perceives themselves as being deficient in some way, I've broken it down to really simple steps so that I think anyone can do it. So the, it, the steps take 22 minutes. So one minute you focus on that information gathering and that's when you say, okay, is this really an emergency? What need, what survival um, urgency is my brain focused on? And then within those 60 seconds, you can distinguish, you can't, have everything in the whole world all at once, but what is it that I need most to release, to relieve my threatened feeling? Then for 22 minutes, 
you focus on doing something you enjoy to give your cortisol time to metabolize because cortisol is what creates the threatened feeling and it stays in your body for about an hour but it has a half-life of 20 minutes it's a long story so if you do something you enjoy for 20 minutes you will avoid triggering more because that's what we do once our cortisol is on it tells you to look for threats and then people find threats and they find more and more threats and release more and more cortisol so the whole idea is not to get into a spiral and if you've been in a spiral before your brain has built a pathway to create another spiral mm. and that's what makes it so hard to get out of so i help you design a list of fun activities that you like not the good for you stuff at this moment but what makes you feel good that you couldn't even have portable to bring with you that will give your time you time to metabolize cortisol so you um can have a positive look at your third step, which is taking that next step immediately so that you give your brain that feeling of, I can do something to meet my survival needs. And again, that gets your happy chemicals going. Okay. Can you give some, I know each person, you know, obviously it's yeah. going to, you know, be dependent on that, but can you give uh, just a couple of examples of happy activities um, for someone to help them, you know, rewire those pathways? Sure. So one thing I talk about is keeping your mind and your body busy together. And that doesn't necessarily need to be exercise. It could be cooking, it could be knitting, but if, if, if you're knitting and then you're maybe listening to a podcast, that would be an example of keeping your mind and your body busy at the same time. Now, um, you want to really monitor that you're having a positive. So the classic example is they tell you to take a walk in the park. But if you're walking and you're just bitterly replaying that awful conversation with your boss, then the walk in the park is not doing it to you. So um, you may need to find like an uplifting podcast that you listen to while you're walking in the park. So another example would be if a person does yoga, but they get a upset while they're doing the yoga because they criticize their body or something, that is not doing it to you. So for example, um, many people, if you play a musical instrument, they find that relaxing. And my husband spends a lot of time practicing piano, but then he gets upset with his piano playing ability. So I, I call it um, stock your pantry with anxiety tamers. And I have a really long list of ideas and then to help you go through them and to really observe your reaction to them to make sure that it's something you like. And I have to tell you, mine are, are a little unusual, but um, maybe people can relate. So I love watching videos in a foreign language because I find that I have to focus so hard that I cannot think about anything else. And that's the point. So even if a person were playing a video game, again, if it really wipes the slate clean for you, good. If it gets you riled up, that's not the activity. Okay. So I'm thinking about the times when I've been, you know, very stressed about work or um, something going on in my personal life. And you're right, finding those activities uh, that will help you get out of, of that uh, you know, mode. Yes. yes. That can be that can be absolutely challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I'll tell you another one I have. Uh, I always okay. talk about that you need a portable one. So I have comedy um, things to listen to. And again, you, you can queue up and create a file of things to listen to when you're in a bad moment. And then if I'm in a public place, I walk up and down stairs while I'm listening to comedy. So it's something you can always have with you. Mm, yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. And I guess building up a tool chest really for you, your own personal yeah. tool chest of what's going to help you, you know, re relay down those tracks. I always think of them as like train tracks and the, the ones that have yeah. been there forever are the ones that are going to take a lot more work to, yeah. um, you know, yeah. to get somewhere else, but it is doable. It's, yeah, it's definitely doable. I have to mention though, when you said, you know, when you're upset by things going on, um, I often found that I get upset by minutia. And I asked myself, why am I so upset over this minutia? Um, and uh, the most common example is I like, let's say you have to go online and register for this or that. And you think it's like a one minute task. And then 20 minutes later, you still haven't gotten into this website or this filled out this form or something. And I get so upset by that sometime. So that's when I, I have to say, why is this stupid thing upsetting me so much? So um, again, we can all stop back and think, um, often it's, there's a certain randomness. In my sense, it's, um, well, you could say it's powerlessness. It's the feeling of time is running and you're not getting anything right. done. And those are all old circuits from childhood. And the thing that triggered them was really minutiae. Yeah, that's true. That's true. What about um, when you're doing something that's stressful? Like you're, so let's say you're in a traffic jam or you're, you know, you're, you're um, someone cut you off in traffic or you're in a dangerous situation, things that you can do to help. And in that moment, I know the tool chest is helpful, but you can't, you know, you, you yeah. can't necessarily go take a walk, you know, you're stuck in a car. So what, yeah. what are things there? Yeah. Well, first, you know, when I'm in a car, I always have something to, to listen to that I enjoy. And I always have a backup so that if I have something I thought it would be enjoyable and then I'm listening to it and I find that it's really a downer, I just kill it and go to the next one, you know. So I really always want to have something uplifting with me. And then let's say that um, that response of some someone cutting you off in traffic. So there's a few things. So one is to say, it is a surge of cortisol because it was a real survival threat from my mammal brain's perspective. And that cortisol is a real chemical. It's in my body and it's going to give me a negative view of everything I think of for the next half hour. So don't, you know, don't, um, if you start thinking about other things, you'll find that then you'll have bad thoughts about that and then that'll trigger more. So it's really useful to, to just, what they say is, you know, to thank your body, you know, thank you body for being always ready to protect me. And sometimes I even try to look for the positive and I say, well, that person maybe was really in an emergency. And someday when I'm driving and I'm in an emergency, the people around me will be understanding. Okay. Okay. Well, that's really good advice. I mean, this is all really good advice for everyone, no matter what's going on. What about factors like your 
extremely ill. Um, you're getting chemo yeah. as an example, you know, those yeah. kinds of things where oh. your body is, you know, your body's already under stress because of medication or illness yeah. or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a friend, a very terminal friend right now that I've, <gasps> I know what you mean. Um, animals are not aware of their own mortality and humans are. So, um, and as I said, the cortex is always anticipating the future. So this is very distressing, this, this um, anticipating the future. And uh, in addition to your whole pantry of positivity, on a deeper level, the thing that relieves our, um, our mortality fears is what we use the word legacy. The legacy is that feeling that some little bit of me is going to survive. And that's what we desperately care about. And that's why pharaohs built pyramids and composers composed music. Now, not everybody can build a pyramid. And in history, most people created something that would survive by teaching their traditions to their grandchildren. But today, almost no one gets to teach their traditions to their grandchildren for a whole host of reasons that I could explain. So we all long for some other way of creating something that will survive. So I joke that, you know, even if a, a sandwich is named after you at your local coffee shop, I mean, it's like anything a person does that Invest your effort in creating something that will survive. Now, two caveats on this. One is that we all know this um, change the world impulse that's so popular today that often leads to anger because it's sort of this rescue superhero thing where it's oppositional and everything in the world is bad and I want to change the whole world. That is such a, a, an extreme version of this impulse that you just always feel like you're then not doing it. So you have to feel success that you are doing it. So I use a simple example that if you want to teach your grandchild the recipe that you learned from your grandmother and your grandchild isn't interested, then, you know, create a beautiful version of that recipe and laminate it and give it to someone else. So it's like plant your seeds and find soil and enjoy it and don't focus on the people who are not interested in your seeds or your soil. <laughs> mm, gotcha. <laughs> well, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and also where they can find the book. Great. Well, the book is available in all the usual um, outlets. And I have the Inner Mammal Institute that explains all of my books and has lots and lots of free resources and videos and all formats of information a person might want to learn more about this, innermammalinstitute.org. Fantastic. Loretta, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show, for writing this new book, and for doing a podcast on the network. Thank you so much for having the network. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. 
and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.